This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday and that means it's time for our Zoomer Squad. As the economy starts to reopen across the country, the question is, how do we keep the focus on improving conditions for seniors in long-term care? We've seen a number of lawsuits launched. Is that the way to go? And we've also seen a move like the one instituted by Ottawa City officials, banning families from visiting loved ones in nursing homes from outside the windows. That was panned pretty well across the board, but uh, it's still in effect today, as far as I know. CARP also has some asks to alleviate the particular economic hardships that older people are facing during the pandemic. So we'd like to hear from you on these various things. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And right now, let's get to Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP. David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Uh, so, um, how was everybody's weekend, by the way? Did you notice it was a weekend? <laughs> Hanging in there. Hanging in there, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> okay, so uh, we're starting to reopen across the country. Is is there a danger that the the focus that everyone seemed to have on long-term care is is now going to be uh, dissipated? Marissa? I think, that's, I think that's certainly a fear uh, that, you know, that focus will be eroded and will end up back in the status quo we were in after even the wet law for inquiry. So um, I think that that's always a fear. Uh, particularly with what we've seen, you know, it's what we've seen sort of unfold in these nursing homes is just so tragic, but not unique to COVID. And so we know that a lot of the challenges that we're seeing, you know, they existed before and they, they will persist. So even if COVID does go away, the challenges will continue unless government acts. Uh, I, think, I think that's right. I think that the... Uh there's no reason we can't hold two uh, points of view simultaneously, and that is to clean up the deficiencies in the long-term care system, particularly in, as a way of uh, mitigating you know, future pandemics. We, we can attack that while also uh, getting the economy back. Nobody's thinking that uh, the long-term care problem would be sufficient reason to never restart the economy. So, I mean, I think one can happen along with the other. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about more people's focus because, you know, it's a, it's kind of a situation, I think, where everybody was forced to look. And now they'll be looking at other things. Peter? It's a big uh, problem that we won't forget it. Um, we're going to have to get the economy going first and get things sorted out. And then when we have a little bit of breathing space, I think we'll come back and address it and, and maybe 
maybe that time is good. You know, it'll it'll let us all reflect on it, and uh, rather than going at it while it's still top of mind. What about these uh, proposed lawsuits? Uh, a couple of them are proposed class action lawsuits, not yet certified, about nursing home negligence during the pandemic. Is that a good way to go? Um, I gather that legal experts are saying that those cases will turn on what is considered reasonable care during a pandemic. Uh, does anybody have a view on that? I think in many ways they were inevitable because of you know, the tragedy that we've seen unfold in long-term care homes around the country, again, no one can really claim to be surprised at what happened. So, you know, to your question, I think in many ways these class actions were inevitable. My heart just breaks for the families who lost loved ones. And I would argue that every one of these deaths was preventable in long-term care. But from a legal point of view and, and some of the background material we looked at, you know, in, in prep for the show is that it's a it's a very, very tough threshold because you have to prove that it was given that the nursing home or the long term care facility is obviously not responsible for the virus in the first place. You have to prove that what they did made the difference between life and death. And that's not going to be uh, easy. But I want to uh, just flag another angle of this, Libby, for the listener, for you and for the listeners, that in the United States, which is infinitely, infinitely more litigious than Canada, they are starting to talk about whether state governments are leaving themselves open to liability uh, for opening their economies too soon. If you declared the lockdown was over and people went back to work and then I got sick and, uh, God forbid, something, you know, somebody got sick and died, uh, can you then be sued? And in the United States, where they're very trigger-happy with lawsuits, uh, liability is becoming an actual topic now in assessing whether they can uh, can or should restart the economy. Well, I, I have to say that uh, through the course of this, the United States, you look at what's going on there <laughs> yes, and yes. just shake your head and, and think, thank goodness we are here in Canada. Yeah, yeah. But... But, but, the, but I would just add to, to to your point, David. I think that there will be some things that are that are able to be clearly demonstrated. For example, care workers working in multiple homes. Why did BC prevent its care workers from working in more multiple homes two weeks before Ontario did? Um, why were many of these homes abandoned by care workers? I mean, I'm thinking of the Maison Heron comes to mind. That one's a pretty obvious case of negligence. But in a lot of the other homes, for example, you know, why were care workers not fully equipped with personal protective gear months ago? Um, So I think those are some of the things that'll probably come up in in these. uh, Yeah, I think you're right. But but uh, on the I other, would just be, yeah, you're right. Sorry, on, on the other hand, though, we've seen this situation basically around the world, where where the death toll in long term care is horrific, but everywhere. Peter, yeah, I, I was um, I was looking at one of these personal injury uh, lawyer websites, and they're, and they're doing a fishing expedition to see if there's interest enough in a class action. And um, their overriding theme is the facility ought to have known of the risk of infection and acted accordingly. That's their threshold for, you know, getting people interested in in a class action. And, um, you you know, they ask the question, did did they put lockdown procedures in place soon enough? Did they isolate sick seniors? uh, Sick seniors. 
Did they inform families of what they were doing? Did they provide their staff with personal uh, protective equipment? And did they institute infection controls to mitigate all the risk? So um, I think, you know, there may, there may be, um, yeah, I, I don't know if that'll, if that'll get it going, but, but I'm, I'm sure a lot of families can answer yes to, or, or yes, the homes didn't do that, you know, and, and there, there's going to be some, some uh, repercussions. Well, a lot of the homes are not equipped to properly isolate residents as well. <clears throat> Remember, a lot of the older homes, particularly the private ones that were built in the 60s and 70s, still have four-bedroom wards where people are living in such close quarters separated by a curtain, a privacy curtain. But we- um, I'm, just, I'm just worried that you're going to lose a lawsuit on, on legal. You know, the threshold is very high in these cases to prove negligence. The damages are zero because it's... Uh, uh, except for punitive damages, because you, you can only recover economic damage of what money the person earned for you or contributed to you that you are now uh, without because they died, and that's not going to be, uh, you know, uh, an area you're going to be successful. I'm just worried that if we have a couple high-profile cases that are overturned on legal grounds, does that get everybody off the hook and say, well, you see, we did everything we could, there's nothing to fix. And I think it'll be more productive to go after this uh, the way CARP is as a advocacy effort and a mobilizing uh, effort. The Zoomers are the majority of voters. We cast 60% of the votes in every election. If we want to make this the issue, it can be. And I think that's a more productive way to go than uh, lawsuits. Uh, let, let me also introduce this. We learned that, uh, at least here in Ontario, that in order to prepare for the pandemic, a lot of people were moved from alternate level of care in hospitals into the nursing homes. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I was wondering, how did they even do that if there wasn't room in nursing homes before? And I got a very interesting answer from Jane Medus of the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly. Uh, some of our listeners may have heard this uh, a few days ago when we were on the air with her. And she said that they got rid of all the previous rules. People no longer had a choice of where to go. They mm-hmm. had to go wherever the LIN, uh, the local health integration network, sent them. And if they if they declined, the consequences were pretty dire. So few people declined. Uh, and uh, they also put people who were in alternate level of care in the hospital at the top of the crisis list, which was not the case beforehand. So, you know, in any, uh, you know, in any reckoning of this, uh, surely the, the provincial government will have a lot to answer for there as well. For sure. And in fact, pushing the people at most risk into facilities that were already underprepared. Mm-hmm. Marissa, but on the other hand, you know, if I I can't really blame them if we were all watching pictures of hospitals in in Italy and New York for clearing space in the hospitals. Well, we were watching pictures of acute care facilities being overwhelmed by COVID, but we were also watching images and hearing stories of long term care homes being. So, you know, obviously our pri- our politicians made a decision about what their priority was going to be. And in many ways, our acute care facilities were way better prepared for this pandemic than our long-term care homes. 
Well, yeah, that's only because we cleared space, because all those acute care facilities well, were at capacity before, if not well, more. Well, that and, and also we were testing, we were rigorously testing patients and, and, and staff in, in, in hospitals, and, and also our, our protective, our PPE was all prioritized for acute care settings, not long-term care homes. True. We also, we also have to bear in mind and that, you know, there's going to be all kinds of po- uh, you know, post-event reckonings here that the models were consistently overstating the degree to which the hospital systems were being mm-hmm. or were going to be overwhelmed. In the U.S. again, I hate to bring up the U.S. again, but, you know, those hospital ships that were desperately needed and went to New York empty, uh, long-term uh, emergency hospitals, a 1,000 beds, 2,000 beds built in California and Texas to cope with the overflow, empty, shut down within... Two weeks, so the the prediction of the avalanche that was going to hit the hospital system uh, turned out to be overstated. Oops, um, badly, badly overstated. Okay, let's uh, take a call from Debbie and Pickering. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? Good, thank you. Go ahead. You're on the air. Hi there. Uh, I actually have a personal interest in those homes that are in Ottawa where they're having the problems with the window viewing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should get to that. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. I actually emailed the mayor of Ottawa, Mr. Watson, on Friday night to find out exactly what was going on. And he emailed me back Saturday morning and explained that actually people were going up to the windows and actually physically removing the screens from the windows and reaching through and hugging their loved ones. Uh, and that happened at, at, at all of those long-term care homes? So you're okay with what they, with what they did? Oh, absolutely. My uh, dad was in a long-term care home in Perth, Ontario, and I actually received an email from them on Friday evening stating the new procedures in place because people were just showing up on the grounds and going to the common outdoor area where PSWs were bringing out residents for fresh air. And they were not physically distancing themselves from the staff or the residents. Okay, I'll run that by the panel, Debbie. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Okay, is there, uh, we, we heard the Premier blasting uh, Ottawa for doing this, the city officials there, and it was widely panned. Uh, are they justified because of uh, however many instances there were of this? Well, I think, look, looking through a window is, is obviously not a threat to the safety of the residents inside the home, and in many ways is beneficial to support um, you know, decreasing isolation in this climate. Um, but, you know, if there are other things that are other activities that are happening that are putting people at risk, um, is there a better way rather than a straight ban to decrease that risk um, so as in order to ensure that families can continue to see their loved ones, you know, in a way that's safe? I don't know. Support a huge ban on it, though. Yeah, I mean, uh, the mayor has said that they they have to figure it out by sometime this week. But it did seem a little draconian, uh, you know, to those of us who uh, were watching it. David? I think it's very draconian, but it it, it points out to the problem that you can't impose or you can't enforce rules that 
uh, can cover every eventuality, particularly if people don't right. have any common sense. Right. And if you, and it also shows you the depth to which the media cannot be expected to, I don't think, to be fair to the media, cover every single wrinkle. When you hear the story at first, when I heard the story, I'm thinking people standing outside the window blowing kisses, waving a sign. Why would you want to ban that? Now, a few minutes ago from the caller, I hear they're removing the windows. They're reaching in. I mean, that's a very different situation. Mm-hmm. And it ought to be possible to pass a bylaw to make that illegal with a heavy mm-hmm. fine and not ban everybody else that just wants to stand there and wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and it's 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 hard to believe that that was happening at all of the city-owned exactly. homes. No, you're right. Of I mean, uh, you know, to be to be fair, and uh, yeah, I mean, the situation is just heartbreaking for people. No, and the vast majority are probably doing it the right way, just waving through a window and getting on the phone and communicating with their loved ones through that window over the telephone. Um, so, if there are a few bad apples that are putting people at risk, then obviously there need to be steps. But, you know, a, a broad ban on, on, on visiting people through windows, I, I don't think is the, is the right course of action here. No, no. Okay. Particularly with all of the, you know, negative health effects associate, that are associated with, with social isolation and so on and so forth. Okay, let's hear from Alexis and Markham. Hi, Alexis. Oh, hello, Libby. Thank you so much for taking my call. Mm, I'm about to say what most people maybe, I would say a lot of people have thought of and not really been blunt enough to say. I believe that the federal government made a conscious decision years ago not to fund their elderly housing the way it should be funded to properly take care of the elderly because they more than likely found that they were not worth it in the sense of they're old, they're taking up too much money and we need to sort of put our money in better places. And so um, I think that was a conscious decision. I don't blame the provinces because I don't believe the provinces got the money needed to do what they needed to do for the elderly. I think it's a federal problem. And I I am absolutely uh, horrified that COVID-19 has taken the toll that it has. But Having said that, the flip side of that is if these people were lying around suffering with lack of care, not getting their meals and time, sitting in feces, etc., maybe it was a blessing in disguise that some of them did leave this earth to go to a better place because that is not the way you treat humanity. I wouldn't treat an animal like that. Okay, Alexis. I remember... Alexis, thanks for your call. That's uh, that's a, a pretty uh, stark statement. Uh, you know, um, obviously, long-term care and following through on the many recommendations has not been a priority. I don't know if it was, uh, you know, an active decision that older people don't matter, but uh, it's always, I guess, out of sight and the easiest thing to be out of mind and out of pocket. Marissa? I do think that there is an element of ageism that is associated with our lack of attention to long-term care. We do know that ageism is so pervasive in society, people don't even recognize it anymore. 
Um, And so I've been asked a number of times, well, why didn't we act sooner? It is the question that needs answering from all levels of government. Um, When we had a very robust inquiry out of the wet lawfare case with 91 very clear, positive recommendations, why are we no further ahead than we are then? Um, With respect to funding, I mean, it's a tricky one because a lot of the funding is provincial, the, the feds, yes, they control the purse strings to a certain extent, but it's a, a percentage and they don't dictate necessarily where those dollars go. I do think there is an opportunity coming out of COVID-19 for the federal government and the provinces to work more collaboratively on a national strategy to fix our long-term care system, but not just long-term care, really a system that looks at, okay, how are we going to care for a population that is aging? Um, So I think that that's an important thing that ought to come out of this. But to your caller's point about, um, you know, them ignoring it, because they, I mean, I, I think I think I think that there is, as I said in the beginning, an element of ageism to this for sure. Okay, let's hear from David in Queensville. I, Hi, David. I, I, oh, just, I'm just taking a call here. Well, and I'm then, different, David. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, right, David okay. in Queensville. You're on the air. Hello, Libby. Uh, um, it's good to hear your voice and all the other panel, and that everybody's doing well. And, Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much to everybody at Zoomer for being there. You're good medicine for a lot of people. Thank you. We can't estimate the health care costs you've saved. Uh, that's, that's beyond uh, reckoning. So what I'm doing is I'm looking at a copy of the criminal code, uh, reading criminal negligence, after listening to your discussion. And if I can read it out, it says, Everyone is criminally negligent who, in doing anything or in omitting to do anything, that it, it is his or her duty to do shows wanton or reckless disregard for the lives of safety of other persons. And looking down further, despite the reference for the lives and safety of other persons, this makes out criminal negligence. The offense need only result in the potential harm to one other person. So, it, so all that has to be proven in these long-term care homes and in the governance oversight and management of this affair is that one person, one other person, there was a result of potential harm to them, whether it was injury or death. Well, I, I don't think that's going to be a very difficult thing to prove if we, if we really seriously, all of us out there listening, are, are, are holding all, everybody accountable and not backing off and not forgetting this because too many people have died and more people are going to die. And there's a Washington Post article I saved in 2017 anticipating this um, by Lena's son called Super Spreaders Fueled Epidemic. Super spreading was more important in driving the epidemic than we realized, he said. So there's, there's a, it might be worth looking back into that because we're going to open the doors and they're still looking at the Ebola crisis and the SARS and saying we let things we, we, we didn't know enough about one person could infect two or 300 people fast. And we got to look at that before yep. we open up. Yep. I just want to pass that on. Okay, David, thanks for that. Uh, we are starting to run out of time. So uh, let's wrap things up with some final thoughts, starting with Peter. Yeah, I, I think, you know, these lawsuits are going to come. Um, and there's going to be a lot of questions asked about not only nursing homes, but whether provinces did the right things with their emergency powers. There's going to be a big, um, you know, reflection on all this. And 
and I think there's going to be a lot of hard questions asked about what the provinces did about this whole situation, what they did wrong, and who is to blame for it all. David? Well, I want to go back to, I think it was Alexa, your caller, who talked about the ageism and about the deliberateness. And I think that did touch on an angle that will be part of uh, the uh, either the second-guessing or the, the reassessment Peter talked about, which is that it was deliberate from a budget point of view. You can't claim you didn't realize what funds you were you were allocating, you thought there was some other allocation. They knew exactly how much money was being allocated to what. They knew exactly what regulations were or were not in place. I don't think it was a malicious intent, but clearly there's going to be some very hard questions about what is society prepared to do, starting with home care and going all the way through the continuum into long-term care. What is society prepared to do? to properly care for Canadians as we age, what resources is society prepared to allocate to that? And I think that's the big question that's going to emerge from all this, and I think uh, uh, CARP will certainly be there in the forefront uh, uh, to try to get uh, the point of view of our and the needs of our generation uh, clearly in the minds of the politicians. Marissa? I think we could and should have been better prepared in long-term care homes. Um, the impact that COVID-19 was going to have on long-term care was foreseeable. We saw it happening around the world. We knew that adult populations were being hit harder. Um, seniors residing in these in these settings in close proximity, we knew that the with we knew that the risks for the transmission were greater. We're preparing now for a second wave. What will that look like and how will governments react differently than they did this time? What we know about COVID is that there are weaknesses in the way care is delivered in long-term care settings. This was exposed, um, but these challenges existed before and they will persist without action. And so CARP will continue to do our part to hold the government accountable for this. Okay. Uh, This will be an ongoing conversation, I think, for a long time, or at least uh, the Zoomer squad will make sure that it is and remains top of mind. Thank you so much, Marissa Lennox, David Kravitz, and Peter Mugridge. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Okay. Bye-bye. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.